We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, God Almighty Hisself, The Life and Legacy of Dick Allen, the publisher, University of Pennsylvania Press, the author, Mitchell Nathanson. Please join me as we welcome Mitch Nathanson to the clubhouse. And just quickly, uh, Mitchell Nathanson is professor of law at Villanova University School of Law. He is the author of A People's History of Baseball and co-author of Understanding Baseball, a textbook. And Mitch, uh, this book is uh, the God Almighty himself is really a terrific book. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Well, uh, you did a wonderful job. And to get, just get us going, if you could give us a little bit about how this uh, book came about. And I know you, you, you mentioned it in the book. Uh, was Dick Allen involved? Was he not involved? Well, the, the, the book came about because I had written an earlier book about the relationship between the city of Philadelphia and the, and the, baseball, and the Philadelphia baseball teams, the A's and the Phillies. And I had a little section in there about Dick Allen, and it was only a couple of pages. And I, it was not intended to be much, but the feedback I got from that book, there was more feedback about that little couple of pages of Dick Allen than anything in the rest of the book. And people came up to me, and some of them said, yeah, right, yeah exactly right. Other people said, you got that completely wrong. You have no idea what you're talking about. And, and there were people lined up on both sides who were very adamant that either he was public enemy number one, or he was gravely misunderstood. And I am agnostic on the issue of Dick Allen. And so, but I was fascinated as to why there is such diversity of opinion regarding him half a century after the fact. So I started doing some research and that became yeah. the book. Uh, now as for Allen's uh, cooperation, he did not cooperate with the book. Um, I reached out to him, I reached out to family members, I reached out to to, I tried to reach out to him through teammates, people he grew up with, and I spoke to all those people, but um, he, was, he was not interested. Um, he's, he's, and I, one of the things I talk about in the book is he's a, he's a private guy, he's an introvert, he's not very trusting, for good reason, and so he just was not, my take is that he just was not willing to talk to someone he didn't really know. Um, and, you know, in the beginning, that kind of caused me a little, uh, gave me a little pause. But, you know, when I started doing the research, I realized I, that there were other people who had tried to write a biography of Dick Allen, and they all required his cooperation. And that cooperation ended up compromising the projects to the, to the point where they all gave up and, and walked away. Mm -hmm. So I was able to write the book I wanted to write in the end of the day. Um, and I think I ended up with an honest, fair account. Um, you know, he's not in it through, his, through speaking to me, but I did try to get a feel of what it was like to be in his shoes throughout the 60s, as well as what it was like to have to deal with him throughout the 60s. The, you have a sentence in the prologue, and I just want to read this one sentence to, to kind of get us going. Uh, the, fund, the foundational question raised by Dick Allen's mercurial career is this. Why wasn't a black superstar such as Dick, as difficult as he could be at times, accorded the same deference by the working press and fan base 
as were the white superstars of his era. And I, maybe we can just get to that answer as we go through the evening, but I just wanted to get that out there as being, as what you lay out as the foundational question. Right, yeah, it, that, to me that's the issue. The, and and there's, there, is a, there is a group that's trying, working very hard to get Alan inducted into the Hall of Fame, and they're working very hard to um, uh, rehabilitate his reputation, and, and, and they have a lot of testimonials that he's not a bad guy, he's actually a very good guy. And while that's all fine, my approach is a little different. My approach is I don't see how that matters. And because it doesn't seem to matter for other players. And I'm not, I, I'm certainly not, um, the book is not an attempt to, um, to get Dick Allen into the Hall of Fame. Again, like I said, I'm, I'm agnostic on Dick Allen and whether he's in the Hall of Fame or not in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I just wanted to produce a fair account. And I think the thing that's most interesting about him to me is why and how people held him to a different standard. And uh, that's what I was trying to get at in the book. And it, answering that question took 300 plus pages. <laughs> so I won't give you the whole 300 page answer, but that's what I tried to do in the book. So I, I think maybe what we can do is I'm gonna start to throw out a few things, just a, a, a name or a subject, and you can speak a little about them. Uh, that you, and you go into obviously great depth in the book on uh, some of this, but just to get us going. Maybe talk to start before we get to the Phillies. Maybe talk about his his minor league years a, li a little bit about uh, what he went through and what kind of what he was like at that point. So he he was a, a, a huge uh, bonus baby. Uh, the Phillies were late to the to the game when it came to signing African American players, but by 1959 1960 when they signed when they were going after Allen. Um, they had made a real dedicated effort to sign him in, in, in particular, and they ended up signing his two brothers uh, along with him as a, as a means to get him in the fold. Uh, so so they, a lot of attention was paid to him very early on. So he was not one of these guys who came up out of nowhere. The moment he uh, signed with the Phillies, and remember this is before the draft, so anybody could have signed him and he's from Western Pennsylvania. He's certainly not in the Phillies' backyard. If anything, he's in the Pirates' backyard. Uh, but the Phillies really went after him. And uh, he didn't really care where he signed, but whoever gave him the most, that's where he was gonna go. And it turned out to be the Phillies. So he goes there and he, throughout the minor leagues, he was always a great hitter. He had trouble defensively. They moved him all over the place defensively, which bothered him because he came up as a shortstop. He was a shortstop in, the, uh, in high school, uh, and he played some shortstop, then he played some second, he played some center field, he played left field. He played all over the place. Uh, and, and that, I think, caused him some irritation. And even back then, he was very independent, and he would speak his mind. And you know, he's kind of a conundrum in that he is an introvert, in that, so in that he's not effusive. But at the same time, he will speak his mind. And even as a minor leaguer, if he was interviewed about this, and he was interviewed about this in 61, 62, and he was very clear about how he didn't like being moved around like that. Um, uh, there were a couple other issues, which I go into in the book, that um, the Phillies, I guess from their perspective, tried to help him out a little bit. Um, but he looked at that as kind of uh, patronizing, and he spoke out about that. Um, so he had these little issues. Um, the Phillies left him unprotected in the draft, in the expansion draft in 61, uh, and he could have gone to the Colt 45s or the Mets for almost nothing, and 
Um, so he, he was left unprotected and uh, the, uh, the uh, general manager of the Mets, who later took a lot of, you know, uh, you know, took a lot of grief, said, yes, you know, um, uh, you know the Phillies, you know, we, we didn't take him, but, you know, neither did the Colt 45s. You know, nobody <laughs> took him. Everybody, everybody thought that this guy, because he wore these thick glasses, couldn't field and wouldn't be able to hit major league pitching. And he was upset about that. But the thing that I think really caused the main issue was when he got sent to Little Rock in 1963. And everybody probably remembers Little Rock from the uh, Central High School um, desegregation uh, debacle in 1957. And so Little, Little Rock became somewhat of the epicenter of the civil rights movement, um, not in a good way. And, um, but the, and I talk about in the book, Little Rock is actually very complicated when you talk about Little Rock after 1957 in that Little Rock was doing a lot to try to rehabilitate its image. Um, they had desegregated a little bit before the high school, and that's why they were chosen, that's why they, the, the, the Little Rock High School was chosen to desegregate first, because the public library had integrated and the bus system had integrated before that. So they thought it wouldn't be too much of a problem, it turned out to be wrong. But, you know, Little Rock after that, the governor, Orville Faubus, who um, Allen saw has, as public enemy number one, was actually not as, uh, as far of a right winger as he's, his reputation. He certainly was not a liberal, but you know, he was actually trying to make some efforts to you know, bring Little Rock back and integrate the Travelers. He was part owner of the Travelers, um, the Arkansas team. Um, but you know, for Allen, who came from Wampum, which was pretty much racially not neutral, but a little more tolerant than any place in the South, and particularly the Deep South, going to Little Rock was a shock because even though Little Rock was in the process of desegregating, it still was segregated. You still lived, if you were African American, you lived in the black side of town. Um, it was technically integrated, but if you were white, you went to this movie theater. If you were black, you went to that movie theater. And coming from Wampum, it was tough for him. And the Phillies really never did anything, unlike the Dodgers with Jackie Robinson, who, you know, Branch Rickey, you know, it was difficult for Robinson, but Branch Rickey made it a little easier. Um, taking the Dodgers, you know, putting them in Montreal and, and, and having them train in Cuba uh, as opposed to the Deep South. Uh, the Phillies never did any of that with Allen and they kind of left him on his own. And, you know, he, he saw everything after that through the lens of Little Rock, um, even when maybe other people wouldn't see it that way. And so it keeps coming up throughout his career. So let's go from 1957 to Little Rock. I just want to skip ahead to uh, one particular year with the Phillies. Uh, if you could just speak a little bit about the 1964 Phillies. Yeah, so the 64 Phillies, um, I think everybody remembers, they were the team that collapsed. Um, but for the most part that summer, you know, they were running away with it. And um, I had always thought, before I started this, I always thought that the Allen's troubles began in, with the fans at least, I thought they began in 1965 when he had a fight with a teammate. I thought before that, the fans were pretty much on his side. He was Rookie of the Year in 1964. What I learned was the fans were booing him as early as July of 64, while the Phillies were still running away with it, and, and which I found fascinating, because I didn't know that. And so you know, I looked into that, well, why were they booing him? And again, it was because when asked a question, he would speak his mind. Uh, they were running away with it, and the Sports Illustrated reporter asked, they went to 
Jim Bunning, who looked like he was going to be the Cy Young Award winner, and Callison, who looked like he was going to be the MVP, uh, and Allen looked like he was going to be Rookie of the Year, and, and the, the reporter went to Bunning and said, you know, how does it feel to be potentially the Cy Young Award winner? And he said, oh, it would be a great honor. Went to Callison, same answer. And goes to Allen, and Allen's response is, oh, I don't really care. There's no <laughs> money in it. Um, if they gave me some money, I guess I'd care. But I, I'm more interested in the All-Star game, because Willie Mays told me you get $5,000 for that. <laughs> so that got written up in, the, in, in Sports Illustrated, and he was written off as a bad actor. And fans started to boo him because of that. Um, and so it was little things like that. Um, and that kind of led up. The Phils continued to play well. And then there was a, uh, a race riot in the North Philly neighborhood surrounding Connie Mack Stadium in late August of 1964. And the Phillies were out of town for all of that. And um, the interesting thing about that was, remember, the Phillies had not collapsed yet. So everybody thinks that this is the collapse. They're still in first place. They come back to North Philly after the riot. So they come back September 1st. And this is by far the best player in the National League right now. Uh, they are, the Phillies are in first place. They're running away with it. As soon as Allen sticks his head out of the dugout, he is booed by the vast majority of the fans. Now, he hasn't said anything about anything. He wasn't in Philadelphia. He has nothing to do with any of this. The Phillies have not collapsed. He was booed every time he stuck his head out of the dugout, every time a ball came his way, Every time anybody's attention was brought to Allen, fans booed. And it wasn't just a few fans. It was the vast majority of the fans. Um, I spoke to Arnold Haino, who, um, who, who's still out, living out in, in um, uh, California. And because he wrote a great article about this in Sport Magazine in 64. And so I, I was lucky enough to talk to him. And I asked him about it. And he said it was, he couldn't believe it. He, he said he was stunned when he went to Connie Mack Stadium. And he said there was, 12,000 fans that first night, and he said, I, I think 11,000 of them were billing him. And he was, couldn't figure out why, and he went to some of the writers, the local writers, like, what, what's going on? And they said, I think this is, this is backlash. And I think for a segment of the fans, they, were, they picked out Allen as the face of all of the troubles that had just taken place in North Philly, and he sort of became the face of all of that, even though he had nothing to do with any of and they just booed him mercilessly for the rest of the month um, until the team collapsed and they booed everybody. But, <laughs> but, but, you know, but that was before the time when we normally think that you know, he, he was public enemy number one. And we'll get to some names that I think most of the people in here will know, but I want to touch on a name that many may not know. If you could just speak a little, and I, I hope I pronounce it correctly, uh, Clem Capizzoli. Yes, Clem Capizzoli. Um, his name was always misspelled in the paper, so don't feel like if you can't pronounce his name, nobody else could pronounce it either. Um, he was Alan's agent, and he was, I, I, I tried to determine if he was the first baseball agent, and I was not able to confirm that he was the first baseball agent. I think other people had agents before that. But I, he, he, he was one of the first, and I do believe he may have been the first agent who successfully negotiated a contract with management. And, and he did that by the mid-60s. And he was a guy that the writers could never figure out, well, why is this guy hanging around? <laughs> um, and the, the writers would make fun of him. You know, he has a face like a, he, he, was a, he worked for the American Baking Company. And so the writers would always make fun of that. Oh, he has a face like a dinner roll. 
Um, being around celebrities pumps them up like uh, yeast in a biscuit, you know, stuff like that. They could not figure out why Clem Capazzoli was hanging around Dick Allen. What they didn't notice was that every year, Allen's salary was doubling, and nobody else's was. And, and uh, every year, Allen went from 10,000 to 20 to 40 to 80. And, and, and still, the, the writers could not figure out why is Clem Capazzoli around? But you know, he, Alan was smart enough to realize that he was not the best negotiator um, because, you know, as he said, you know, I have a high school education. Um, the Phillies have a guy whose job is to negotiate contracts, so I should have a guy who negotiates contracts, and you know, let's, let's make it fair. And so he insisted on Capazzoli negotiating with the Phillies, and he did every year. Uh, I know we're going to have a lot of uh, questions from the audience, so I want to get to them, but I just want to, and this is kind of a broad base, so this, I, I know this is going to be difficult, but the over, uh, this, the subject of managers, uh, I'm just going to throw a couple names out there, and then whatever you want to speak about, uh, because they, they kind of run the gamut regarding Dick Allen. Uh, Gene Mark, Bob Skinner, Chuck Tanner. That's the gamut right there. <laughs> so Gene Mock was his first manager, and uh, I, I spoke to um, some players, Phillies players, uh, about him, and uh, the best comment came from Dallas Green, who, who said that there was nobody who knew the game better than Gene Mock. Uh, he was terrific with, with regard to the, he knew all the rules, he knew everything, he knew how to maneuver, uh, you know, uh, uh, pitching staffs and things like that, he said, but as a, he was an ogre to players, and he could not deal with players. And in that era, you didn't really have to be very good at it unless you were dealing with a free spirit like Dick Allen. And the thing that bothered Allen uh, about Mock was all of these little rules. And Mock Mark knew in his mind that he knew not only the game, but he knew the people who played the game better than they knew themselves. And he would play mind games with them. He, uh, he would he would tell a, um, his trainer to disguise um, uh, tranquilizers as aspirin to give to jittery pitchers. I think you go to jail for that today. <laughs> but, but that's what he did because he saw a pitcher who looked a little nervous and so he'd have the, tr the trainer, you know, Joe Licio, you know, throw something in his, uh, in, his, in his drink and you know, thought he would calm him down. He had a lot of little rules. Allen's only rule was if I can perform on the field, doesn't matter what I do before 7.30 and after 10, 10 o'clock. Um, so he bristled at Mark and they just never got along because Mark always needed, he needed adherence to the rules or else he, he couldn't really, he couldn't, he couldn't work. Um, so that was Mark. Um, Skinner, right, you asked me about right. Skinner. Skinner took over for Mark and Skinner initially said he doesn't need to, you know, I'm not going to worry about the rules so much, but Skinner was an ex-Marine. He, 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 he did like the rules, and he, he really believed in hierarchy, and the hierarchy was the manager was ahead of the players, no matter who the players were. And so he tried to be a little looser, but he really couldn't. And he, he walked out in 69 um, in after Allen refused to play in an exhibition game in Reading. Um, it, was, it, it was a funny story in that he, Allen said he wasn't playing. The interesting thing about Allen was, he understood fines differently than anybody else did. Managers like Mock and Skinner 
they used fines to control people. So no, you can't do that, that's $1,000, with the understanding that you're not gonna then do it. Allen understood fines as the price for his freedom. So he would ask, well, what's the fine if I don't go to the game? thousand bucks. He goes, here's a thousand, see ya. And, and so he, for him it was the price. It was the, it was the price of a free afternoon. What's the afternoon going to cost me? Fifteen hundred dollars? Fine. And in fact, he said that about Bob Carpenter, the owner of the Phillies. You know, just, just put the envelope in my, in my mailbox. Just don't give me any lectures. And, and so, um, you know, when, when he refused to go to the exhibition game, it was the same conversation. What's the, you know, how, what's the fine for not going to the exhibition game? And it was a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars. And he said, "Okay, fine," and walked out. Skinner ran up to John Quinn's office to try to get support. Quinn said, "You're on your own," and um, uh, uh, Skinner quit uh, because he just he, he couldn't handle that. So he had a lot of managers who had issues with rules uh, until he came to Chuck Tanner in Chicago. And Chuck Tanner was really kind of like the Joe Madden of his day. And he would, he would say, you know, this whole thing about rules and, and you have to have one set of rules for 25 players is just absurd. You've got 25 adults in the room. Maybe the young players need a little bit more. But the older players, I'm going to let them go on their own. And he let Allen do what he wanted. He didn't really have, didn't have a curfew for him. And Allen's first year, he was MVP. And they got along well. Uh, for the most part, um, but you know, Alan didn't really like authority, and at the end of a couple of years, he bristled with Tanner, but not as much as with Skinner, and particularly not as much as Mark. And we're going to get to the questions now, but I just want to read something first. I, I, I didn't tell Mitch this, so this is a surprise to everybody. Uh, for those of you here, you know, people listening on the podcast, we have a, a bunch of books on, uh, in a certain area of the clubhouse. Those are all the authors that have been here for events. And one of the authors sent me an email about this event. And I just want to read it. It's only two sentences. Wish I could be there. Dick Allen is one of my best friends in baseball and one of my favorite teammates. Chuck Tanner had no trouble handling him. He won the MVP with him as manager, Jim Cott. Uh, <laughs> uh, now we're ready for questions. <laughs> Can't top that. <laughs> Mitch, my brother-in-law and I both read Crash years ago. I forget who the author was, um, but did Dick Allen cooperate with that book, which I think was written in the late 70s? Or Crash was written in the late 80s, and it, it was written by Tim Whitaker and Dick Allen. So it's sort of an authorized biography um, written. Tim Whitaker, who was a Philadelphia sports writer, um, later wrote for Philadelphia Magazine. He basically wrote it, um, but he wrote it with Allen. Uh, so yeah, that came out in, in 89, and um, the, it, it, I, it's a good book. You know, it, it's, it's Allen's perspective, so, which is different from my book, in that Crash is everything from Allen's perspective, and you really learn a lot about how he viewed Little Rock and things like that. I remember Dick Allen. Um, I was 13 and 64. My brother-in-law really got into him more, I think, when he was with the White Sox in 72. Um, he used to frustrate me. He was, he was a heck of a ball player with potential that was totally un unlimited. And I think as a fan, um, a big National League fan, I was a Dodge fan, but I, I love the National League. And he, as a fan, he just frustrated the heck out of me with all the problems. Uh, that was just my, that's my memory, my lasting impression. I always had a dick, a Richie at the time. 
Richie Allen. Well, he was Dick Allen in Chicago. Right. Right. Richie Allen. Yeah. But he was always Dick Allen, actually. I mean, he grew up, uh, his name was Sleepy. His nickname was Sleepy because he had a droopy eye. But um, they called him, uh, he was Dick or Sleepy or Sleeper. I spoke to some people he played American Legion ball with. They said that we, I didn't even know his name was Dick. He was always Sleepy Allen. That's all he knew him as. But um, yeah, it's when he came to Philadelphia, the, there were some sports writers who called him Richie to try to connect what they viewed as the next superstar with the Phillies' last superstar, Richie Ashburn. Uh, and Allen didn't like that. Um, and, and it was interesting that there were, there were all sorts of columns written in, in the white press and the black press. So um, I don't think it's a, it's a racial thing. I, I think it was, it, the, all these articles are written pretty regularly. Every year there'd be one or two about how he hates being called Richie, and yet they still all call him Richie. Uh, and, and until he came to Chicago, part of his contract said his name is Dick. Um, I know that his G, the GM in Chicago, it's kind of hard what they were, there was two guys who were running the team there. Raleigh Heeman? Well, Heeman and uh, Stu Holcomb. And, um, and Holcomb uh, said, you know we, we, you know, we sent him his contract after we traded for him, and I, I said, you know, I'll make, you make two offers, we'll call you Dick, and we'll give you a $5,000 raise. He accepted one of them, <laughs> not, the, not the other. So you know, he, he, he was happy that they changed, they called him what he was supposed to be called, but it, it always was a problem. He was very, very good. He could have been, should have been great. Give us your take on the 65 Dick Allen and Frank Thomas incident. Yeah, so that was interesting um, because there was, a, there was a lot written about it, and what I learned after the fact, obviously 50 years after the fact, was that none of the sports writers who wrote about it saw it, because they were all in Gene Mock's office um, where Mock was holding a press conference. So none of them saw the fight. Um, it, it happened during batting practice July 3rd, 1965. Frank Thomas was um, kind of a utility guy at that point in his career. Um, he was referred to as the big donkey and that he always uh, you know, said the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong people. And he, 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 he missed a bunt the night before um, and then costing Phillies a game. And then the next, during batting practice, he puts a bunt down and somebody says, that's 23 hours too late. And so he yells something back. And actually, I think Callison yelled something back. He thought it was Allen. And you know, Allen uh, went at him. Thomas hits him with the bat. And there was a brawl, and um, Thomas got released after the game, um, in which he hit a home run, by the way, a pinch hit home run. Um, so Allen was blamed for being the man behind the scenes to get, Allen, to get Thomas released. But what people didn't realize was John Quinn, the GM of the Phillies, had put a gag order on Allen and all of the Phillies, uh, where they were not supposed to talk about it. And nobody knew this at the time. Uh, the other players, it was a $1,500 $1, fine. If they said anything, if Allen said anything, he'd be fined $2,500. Now, Frank Thomas gets released. He's subject to no gag order. Thomas is replaying his story and making himself out to be the victim. I tried to apologize. I went to shake his hand afterwards, and Dick wouldn't shake my, Richie wouldn't shake my hand. Meanwhile, all Allen would say is, what fight? Because he doesn't, he can't say anything. Um, his mother pleaded with him to say something. Interestingly, if you read the black press, there's a lot in the black press about this. There's not really much from his mother in the white press, but at the black press, particularly the Pittsburgh Courier, there's, you know, because Wampum is close to Pittsburgh, 
um, she's, she's pretty outspoken about this, about how he's getting railroaded, he should say something, the hell with the fine. Um, but um, yeah, the interesting thing about that, I thought, was that a lot of fans thought that um, Allen was maneuvering behind the scenes, when in reality, he really wasn't. Um, it was the Phillies bungling it by releasing him and then not explaining what was going on and not having the players explain <coughs> what was going on. Uh, and so he took a lot of heat. Um, I spoke to Larry Merchant um, uh, near, right before the, uh, my, my, actually right after my deadline, but I was so, I had been trying to get him for so long uh, and I finally got him and right after my deadline and I, I called my publisher, my editor and I said, hold on, don't, you know, let's just give me another couple of days. And Larry Merchant was great. And uh, when you go back and you read the, the, um, the Daily News, Philadelphia Daily News, he was the most vicious. He, he went after Alan, called him a, a child, a crybaby, an infant. And he was really leading the charge, uh, inciting, I, I would say, uh, the fans. Um, you know, the fans acted on their own, but certainly Merchant's take was pretty, um, you know, pretty scathing. And so I talked to him and I asked him about it. And I talked, initially he was very defensive and he was like, no, you know, look, Alan was a, was a man child and he just didn't you know, understand. And, but then after like a while, I kind of kept him on there and he talked and I just, I realized, I, I learned, I became a better interviewer, interviewer later when I just learned, just don't say anything. Just ask a question and just shut up and let them talk. And if you get a, if you get a silence, usually the person who's being interviewed is gonna try to fill it. And he started doing that and finally I got him to finally, think about it again and say, you know, in retrospect, I may have missed it. I may have missed the story. Um, Merchant was very adamant at the time that there was not a racial aspect to this fight. Thomas is white, Alan was black. Um, and I think the reason that he and other writers didn't want to talk about a racial issue is because this is less than a year after the riot in North Philly. Other cities had had riots over the previous several months. It, you know, there, it, it's, a, it's a hot topic. And I think that by calling this a racial issue, I think there was a concern that this is gonna be a racial issue and it's gonna stir up a lot of emotions. But by not saying it's a racial issue, you're making it a racial issue. <laughs> because there's, a, Thomas called Alan, what are you trying to be, another Muhammad Clay or, or, or you black Muhammadan son of a bitch or something like that. It's unclear quite what he said, but it was racial. And, um, what he said to him. That's why Alan took off after him. And if you don't say that's, if, you, if your conclusion is that's nothing racial, then that's a racial conclusion in that, well then somebody just said something that didn't mean anything and this young African-American guy takes off and hits somebody. That's a racial issue. And in retrospect, Merchant said, you know, I think I got it later. I thought I had the story then, but I think I didn't. And in retrospect, I think I would have dealt with it differently. Um, but it's tough to ask people in the middle of, a, of, a, of an emotional issue to, you know, to, um, to act differently than we would like them to act half a century later. Um, the one thing I would say is the problem with the way it was covered in the, in, in the Philadelphia Daily News Inquirer and the, and the, and the Bulletin I don't, think we, I don't think the problem was that what the writers said. I think the problem was, was that it was a, they, the sports sections were a monochrome outfit. There were no black sports writers at any of those papers during the time. And if you look at the black papers, 
there's a completely different take on that fight. And, th and one of them, um, uh, I can't remember the name, who wrote the, the column? Uh, Doc Young. Doc Young in the um, uh, Chicago Defender said, you know, this fight is racial progress because a white guy and a black guy got into a fight and they released the white guy. <laughs> That's progress. That wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. But it took someone from that perspective to see that. And I think, you know, the, 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 the dailies didn't have any of that. Yeah, so that's in 67, in August of 67. There was a, a game was rained out against the Pirates, and he, and he liked to work on old cars. And so he and a friend were working on a 55 Ford, and they pushed it up. Um, uh, it, it rolled up on a, on a curb, and they tried to push it off, and his hand went through the, um, the, uh, 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 the headlight and lacerated an ulnar nerve. Um, according to, I, I spoke to, several of the writers and other players, they said he was never the same player after that. He was still a great hitter, but he wasn't uh, the hitter that he was before. And you look at his numbers, and his numbers before that were really, in terms of batting average, they were really off the charts. And then he still had several good years after that, but I don't think, I think that took something from him. Um, he was still a great hitter, but I think it did take something. Where did he live in Philadelphia? Was he relegated to no, no, he, he lived in Germantown. Uh, he lived in a nice house on the corner in Germantown, which, by the way, um, Frank Dolson of the Inquirer put his address in the paper, uh, right in the middle of, um, you know, of, of some spat he had with Alan. He puts his address in the paper, and I, I, you know, I read the article that has the address in the paper, so it's not, it's, you know, it, it certainly isn't something that's uh, grown in legend in years. It, he did do it. Um, so, uh, yeah, he lived in a nice house in a nice area, and he would talk about that. You know, I live in a nice house, nice area. Uh, I can't let my kids out of the house now because people, you know, throw stuff on it, threw garbage on his lawn and um, tore up his front lawn with their car and things like that. <coughs> he was in the court thought trade, right? Yes. Now, did he, did he comment on that at the time or later? And did he and Flood have any kind of relationship as far as you know? I write about that, and it, I thought it was really interesting, their relationship. They were, it was one, one problem child traded for the other <laughs> problem child, right? Because Flood had held out the year before with the Cardinals, and um, Gussie Bush was fed up with him, and so he trades him to the Phillies. And the funny thing is that if you thought of, of that trade, if there was going to be a problem, it would be Allen who would be the problem. But, you know, Allen reports, you know, <laughs> eventually. He holds out for a little bit, but he does eventually report. Flood's the one who doesn't. Uh, and, you know, the later flood would say that it wasn't going to Philadelphia that was the problem, it was this bigger issue. But if you go back and you look at the papers at the time, it was Philadelphia. And, and, I, and I think that he didn't want to be the new Dick Allen. He didn't want to be traded from a place where he had connections in St. Louis and he was treated well and he was making good money to go, you know, go from the penthouse to the outhouse, really. And um, so, a lot of the things Flood said when he was traded were things that Allen had said for years in Philadelphia. And, and so it, it, it was interesting that they did have this connection, but as I write in the book, Allen really never saw himself as being 
having all that much to do with flood, and he would be asked those questions, you know, particularly in the early 70s as Flood's case is going through the courts. You know, what do you think about that? And he would say, I, I'm, not, I'm not like Kirk Flood. I just wanted to get out of Philadelphia. Uh, he, he wanted free agency. <laughs> but it was always interesting to me that he, Alan always looked to the next owner. Things would be better if I could get out of Philadelphia. And then he didn't like St. Louis, so things could be better. If I get to Los Angeles with the O'Malley's, that would be better. And then if I get to Chicago, and then after that, he really wanted to go to Oakland. He wanted to play for Charlie Finley. Now this is when Finley is selling off everybody, but he wants to play for Finley. And he always had his eye on the next owner, the next place, because he thought that was help, would help him. When he, what, he, what he missed was he wasn't going to find it in an owner. He was going to find it in Flood and, and the Players Association, but he never really did that much in the Players Association. He always saw himself as different than that. He saw himself as a regular guy, and Flood was a rebel. What happened to the trade then when Flood didn't report? What happened to the trade was it, it, um, Willie Montanez was, um, was substituted. So Montanez came to Philadelphia. And then interestingly, when Allen comes back to Philadelphia in 75 to make room for him, they trade Montanez to San Francisco. So Montanez is you know, related to Allen and coming and going. <laughs> did, he, did he already, Montanez, have his uh, home run trot around the bases that he used <laughs> in New York? He developed a very uh, hot doggy but funny. I know he used, to, he used to flip the bat a lot. Yeah. He, and then when he would hit second, he would go around second twice, as I remember. <laughs> <laughs> now, did he have that in Philadelphia? I don't recall. I remember Montanez in Philadelphia. I don't remember that. I do remember the bat flipping. Yeah. He was ahead of his time. Yes. Yeah. From the people you spoke to, what is Alan's opinion of baseball now? Are they still there? If he was elected to the Hall of Fame, does he care if he would show up? He would show up, I think. I mean, I, I, I certainly can't speak for Dick Allen. Um, you know, in, in fact, in the book, one time he said, um, uh, my representative doesn't speak for me. So <laughs> if his representative doesn't speak for him, then I certainly don't speak for him. But um, yeah, I, I think he, he says he doesn't really care so much about the Hall of Fame. When he was up for it last year, um, he refused to campaign for it. And um, he said, well, if I get in, that'd be great. But if not, I don't, you know, who cares? I don't, I got to think he probably cares a little bit. Uh, and, and, um, but I think he's going to, he just always is going to do things his way. And, and if he can do things his way, fine. And if he can't do things his way, um, you know, let the chips fall where they may. But yeah, I think, you know, he has said more recently that, well, oh, if I played in that, if I played today, I wouldn't have had all these problems, um, which is probably true. But, you know, somebody, I guess the one point I make in the book is, you know, well, somebody had to go through that first. And, you know, it, it's, it, it's going to be a guy like a Dick Allen who's going to have that sort of friction. It's not going to be a guy who goes along and gets along because they're not going to create this issue and point these things out. It's going to be a guy like a Dick Allen. So, um, you know, it's easier now. You know, base, uh, renegades or individualists, are, are, it's not a big deal now. But you know, I think part of it is because the culture changed, and I think he helped to change the culture. Not the only one, but I think he did help to change the culture in baseball. Could you comment about the Phillies' management and their uh, uh, relationship with black fans and Hispanic fans? Sixty-four team had a lot of good Hispanic players, but again, they didn't see that much uh, tension. And 
And is that some of the source for the uh, uh, fan booing? And maybe there wasn't enough of a black face of fans? Or? Well, in, in the 50s, if you, again, in, in, the, in, in, in the white press, you didn't see much about it. But in the black press, the Philadelphia black press, they were very active. And they really pressed Bob Carpenter on this issue um, on, on black players. And um, you know, Carpenter's response to all of this was, hey, I'm not in this to make money. Because um, they, 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 the, there was a series of articles in the mid-50s which pressed him on, you know, why wouldn't you want to cultivate black fans? It just, it's going to bring more fans in this day. And his response was, I don't care. I'm not here to you know, make money. I'm just here. I'm, you know, Again, it's like kind of like the, the sportsman ethos, you know. I'm just here to, you know, provide them, you know, this 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 entertainment, and whoever wants to come can come, and whoever doesn't want to come, well, we don't really care. And so, there was a lot of articles and a lot of letters in the in in the Philadelphia Tribune, the Black Bi-Weekly at that time, from fans who said, "I'm a huge baseball fan. I can't root for the Phillies. I'd rather root for nobody than the Phillies." And so that was a big issue. The Phillies were slow for a National League team in the 50s, mid 50s to early 60s. They were slow in in signing black prospects. Uh, the only black prospects that were, were really Spanish: Tony Gonzalez, Ruben Amaro, uh, Pancho Herrera. From whatever you, Tony Taylor was Cuban. Um, so that's that's what that's what comes to mind. Like Kennedy was the first. Right, John Kennedy. Son. He only played in five games. Right. Yeah. Right. So. Uh, you know, it was he was a novice. Allen was really a novice for, for that. And getting to Chuck Tanner was would you consider Chuck Tanner the first modern type manager, players manager uh, that you see today? That a manager today has to be able to relate to players. I mean, I can't know if he's the first, but he's the first that I yeah. am aware of. Uh, and and he really. A lot of other managers or and the people in ownership management were, were, were really taken aback by the way he would run a ball club and they thought it was chaos. Harry Carey hated him. And um, you know, it was interesting that after the thing, you know, the, the, the White Sox made a run at the A's in 72. And you know, you look now, the A's is one of the great dynasties mm -hmm. in baseball. And the White Sox were a good team, but they certainly weren't the A's. And they almost caught them in 72, but then you know, they kind of fell back in 73 and 74, and it, you know, things kind of fell apart, and Harry Carey was just brutal. <laughs> and he, you know, he, he said, you know, this is all Chuck Tanner's fault. You know, Chuck Tanner ran this club like a, like a zoo, and the players are, the, you know, are, are just walking all over him. I mean, I think the reality was they're just not, they were not as good as, as, as the A's, and you know, they were not a great team. You know, they had a, had a good run, but they certainly weren't a great team. But you know, he, you know, there was a lot of pressure to run run a team the way it was always run. And if you're not gonna, you're gonna do something different. You're gonna pay the price. You know, ta Taylor of uh, Allen and Tanner Sorry. both did. Did he switch hit in the minor leagues? And, and who, if he did, who switched him to being right-handed all along? That's an interesting story. He he never switch hit. But the reason you think he switch hit is because he, wherever he went, he used to play with the media and he would call over a writer. Because he, you know, he didn't really get along with a lot of the writers and he thought the writers you know, played with him, so every once in a while he'd play with them. And he had a thing then, and I saw that he did it in Philly, he did it in St. Louis, he did it in Los Angeles, he did it in Chicago. Same thing. 
He calls a writer over and he says, come here, don't write this, but. <laughs> this is during spring training. And he says, I'm gonna switch hit this year. You know, I switch hit in high school and I'm gonna switch hit this year. Don't write that. So what happens, right? <laughs> so, you know, the, the writer would, you know, has got a scoop and he, you know, he rushes out and gets it out there on the wire and then the next morning, um, you know, comes in and Alan's got a big grin and, you know, every, all the other writers are sitting there by his locker and they're all laughing at the writers. Ah, just having some fun with you. Mm -hmm. And um, he did this, like I said, he did it everywhere he went. He'd find a writer and he'd say that. <laughs> and so, I don't think he, he may have fooled around switch hitting in high school, but he, I don't think he ever was a, he would take batting practice left-handed though. He would. And, and, and um, when I spoke to Bill Conlon, he said, after he did it to uh, Ralph Bernstein of the AP, um, who was the Philadelphia-based AP writer, that's who he played the, the joke on. He said, after he let Bernstein in on the joke the next day, after Bernstein had written the article and it showed up you know, in, you know, in the papers, he went out that day and took batting practice left-handed and, um, and hit some home runs. So he could hit left-handed. He never did it in a game as a professional. I don't think. And the Phillies were in Watts when the riots took, broke out, right? You, that's right. That's and right. Conlon gave you because that that he, he was interviewed for the Agostino's keepers of the game, but Dennis made the choice not to give the whole interview because of what happened with the uh, molestation issue. But he teased enough to make. Uh, yeah, he spoke to me about that. He he spoke to me about that. How they they. They were in Watts during the riots, and they were ordered down under the seats in the buses because there was apparently somebody saw snipers or people shooting off of a bridge. Uh, but yeah, they were there. Yeah. Um, was there anywhere that uh, he liked playing at all? Like you mentioned, Ali always wants to go somewhere. Was well, there anywhere where he felt welcome? He he once said he would play in Alaska as long as they paid him. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> He, I think he liked, he liked to play the game, but he didn't like to be hassled. So wherever he went, I mean, it was just, you're, you're dealing with a structure. And one of the things I focus on in the book a lot is, you know, again, he always pointed at management as the problem. When it really wasn't any individual, specific management that really was the issue, it was the whole structure that, of the game. It was the reserve clause, and it was the way management basically ran everything. That was the issue. So he, he ran into that wherever wherever he was. Um, he, he, he took off in 68 and 69, um, engaged in a couple of sit-down strikes where he just walked away from the club. Um, and he showed up out of the blue at Jacobtown Steel and wanted to go work in the steel, um, yeah, steel yard, steel mine, whatever that is. And uh, so he spoke to the, the guy who runs that and was like, well, what can you do? And he, he, he back out and said, well, I don't know. What, what, do you, what, what do you guys do? And he's like, well, um, you know, he says, can you, you know, can, can you do this? No. Can you do that? No. Can you do, well, what can you do? And Alan says, I can hit. <laughs> he said, well, why don't you go do that? Yeah. So, but, you know, I, I think wherever he went, he was always looking for something else, you know, whether it be a steel mine or, um, or, or, or Philadelphia or Chicago or wherever. But, you know, he liked to play the game. He just didn't like all the other things that went, as Dallas Green said, when the game started, he was, he, was, he was happy. It was before and after the game where there was issues. Did you delve at all into the, the sports world of Wampum and some of, some of Dick's early uh, 
sports accomplishments. I understood, I've heard stories that he was a spectacular basketball player. Yes, yeah, I, um, I spoke to, um, I, spoke, I spoke to his American Legion manager. Um, I spoke to guys who played with him and against him um, in um, Newcastle County when they, they played in all-star teams. Uh, he was, yeah, he was a great player. I spoke to Roland Heeman who said that one of his scouts, uh, John Honey Russell, mm -hmm. uh, yes, Seaton who Seaton also Ball. was a, a Celtics coach, who said that he thought that Allen could be another Bob Cousy if he chose to play basketball. Um, the, the Phillies, right, coming from, from him, that's, that's not just somebody seeing somebody on a court shooting some hoops. This is a guy who, you know, you've seen, you know, Coach Bob Cousy, you know. So we, in, in spring training, before the Phillies moved to um, the Carpenter Complex, they used to play near an armory. And some of the players would play pickup basketball games. This is in early 60s. And um, they would play. Uh, Dallas Green was a basketball player. Johnny Briggs was a basketball player. There was a couple of guys who had played high school or college ball. And um, Allen would just dominate. He was 5'11", and he would dunk over all of them. In, in high school, he, would, he was 5'11", obviously, and he would play center, and he'd post up the other team's center, who's given away several inches, and he'd dunk over that guy as well. I, I think I had read that he was the only person, well, in the early years of high school basketball in, in Pennsylvania, the only person to ever be first-team All-State from a Class C school. Yeah. Now, I, now it's changed now, the different A, well, those Black, clubs, Black a and so on, but he was very small high school. Those clubs, those Wampum basketball teams, they were they were they were the the coach Buster Buster Hennon um, was there. Uh, he was so successful. They won so many uh, uh, class I think I don't know, class C titles, whatever they were. Um, won so many of them. There was a whole article on him in Life magazine on, on Wampum while Allen was there um, in high school, and he used some really odd training techniques. He'd put. Um, heavy shoes on them as they practiced and so they would feel like they're walking on air when they took the heavy shoes off and they'd put blinders on them so they couldn't see peripherally in a practice uh, while they were practicing and that article ended up getting reprinted in a Soviet um, uh, magazine and the Soviet basketball team in the 60s and 70s they adopted a lot of those training techniques so uh, Wampa made its way all the way behind the Iron Curtain eventually. <laughs> Any other? Uh, yes. Can you just talk about his post baseball life, just real quick, because I've lost track of him now. How did he support himself? So he he left baseball in in um, the late seventies. He came back and he coached for a couple of spring trainings. Um, but he was, you know, again for a guy who had a reputation of just being a troublemaker, he would come in and out of these spring trainings, and most of the people didn't even know he was there. Um, there, he, he was in spring training just hitting, you know, hitting fly balls to rookie league outfielders with the White Sox in the mid-80s. And well, a reporter went over to one of these rookie leaguers and said, do you know who's, who's or he was shagging balls, I think, for them. They're hitting, do you know who's shagging for you? And the guy's like, I don't know. I don't know anybody's name. He's like, that's Dick Allen, who's, who's you know, this is not some nobody. And, but he, he was kind of in and out of baseball um, for a while. He ended up with, a, with, a, with actually a PR job with the Phillies in the 90s. And um, he became uh, very popular. And because I think he's, a, he's like a living legend, you know? And, and the thing about him is that you never knew when he was gonna show up. You know, he, he would show up or he wouldn't show up, and, but you never knew until he got there and he would always draw a crowd. And 
you know, many, many years later, he said, I never realized I was this loved. Um, he wasn't that loved earlier, but later on, he, he kind of has taken on this sort of a, kind of a mythic kind of a aura about him. But yeah, he, he, he does card signings and things like that. I think that's how he supports himself. Is he still, uh, does he still have horses? Does he what? Does he still have horses? Yeah, I believe he still does have horses in um, uh, Santa Anita. It's a very expensive hobby. So he, he must, he, he's got money. Yeah, um, he makes money from card shows. Um, he also has some money from, you know, he, he, when he was um, playing, his agent, Clem Capazzoli, would put him on an allowance. And so he only got a certain, you know, a, he got a monthly allowance and the agent put away the rest of it. And according to um, friends of his from Wampum who know him say, well, that's why he has money now because the, the agent invested it for him. And so he has, you know, I, I was not able to confirm that, but, but that's according to this uh, good friend of his at least. What was, uh, oh, go ahead. What was uh, Richie Allen's, uh, why didn't he, uh, any input in the book? What was his objection to? Uh, uh, no, no, he just didn't, you know, he, well, his, so, again, somebody who claimed to speak for him, and I will not, um, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'm not going to say that he spoke for him, I'll just say this person said he spoke for him, um, said that he was working with um, somebody on a documentary and that they, he was contractually not allowed to speak to anybody in a competing project. That's what he, that's what the person told him. He came up as a third baseman and moved to first, then to left field. I mean, did he care? I mean, did, I mean, did he care about defense? And, and did, he, did he feel like he was being diddled around? Or? He did feel that he was being uh, diddled around. He, 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 he never played third base before he played it in the major leagues. Did he played shortstop in high school? He played shortstop in high school, and then he played second and left and center in the minors. And if you think about that, take your, do you think that today? Take your, your top prospect and say we're just going to put you in a new position now and you know you're going to open up in the big leagues you know in a month from now get used to third base I mean that never would happen with a top prospect no, at least not Bobby Wine. Bobby Wine. it was wine and I think also uh, uh, Amaro and, um, and Rojas right <laughs> but but <laughs> after 64 he made I think 41 errors at third base in 64 um, he came to spring training uh, in 65, and uh, Mock wanted to move him to the outfield. And he really didn't like that. And he said, look, I thought I, you know, I won the job. I should be able to play third base during spring training and get some reps. He didn't get any reps at third. Uh, he played the outfield. Played, he played third maybe once in a while. He played left. He played center. He played third. Uh, again, so he didn't really get any reps in spring training. And then day one during the year, Mock said, oh, you're my third baseman again. Uh, again, another thing that irked him about Gene Mock. But yeah, he didn't like being moved around. He always felt that if, if he could stick in one place, he would be better. Now, he never said he would be a gold lover, but he would at least be better. And, but he kept moving around outfield, infield, first base, left field. When the Phillies um, collapsed in 64, would, did he have like a terrible week at the end? Where he hit over 400 that week. He was the only guy who hit. The, the team was hitting, I think, 210, 220 as a team. He hit over 400 during that 10-game span. Um, now, 
they booed everybody during that last week. They didn't just boo Allen. They booed Callison. They booed uh, the pitching. They booed mostly Mark at that point. But um, yeah, he hit. Yeah, he was the only one who hit. Well, due to the time constraint, I think we're going to have to close up the uh, finish up with the podcast. And as fascinating as the discussion was, I just want to close with your final sentences in the epilogue, just so people can get a sense of how beautiful this book is, and hopefully then buy the book. Uh, and that's for you, those of you listening to the podcast as well. Uh, from the epilogue uh, entitled His Way. Although his overall popularity has only grown with the passage of time, he is still largely shunned by much of the baseball establishment. His transgressions remain as they were, as if perpetually suspended in amber. And so Dick Allen himself remains encased within the prism of history. The angle of refraction depended as much upon the position of the viewer as that of Dick Allen himself. The book, God Almighty Himself, The Life and Legacy of Dick Allen, published by University of Pennsylvania Press, written by Mitchell Nathanson. Thank you, Mitch. Thanks. <laughs>